found on the inside of your bulletin. This is Joshua chapter 5. We've been talking about how to live a fearless life in a fearful world. And we've been examining this through the lens of God calling His people, the Israelites, and leading them into the promised land. If you'll remember, they have crossed over the miraculous crossing of the Jordan by the hand of God. And now they are uh, getting ready to uh, attack Jericho. But ah, first, there's something that's necessary and needed to do. And we're going to talk about that. So this is Joshua 5, 1 through 12, begin selling your boat. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel, until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of, the Egypt, out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out of had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. The word of the Lord. Well, Valentine's Day has come and passed. I don't know if it was a wonderful time, the thrill of victory, or the agony of defeat. Valentine's Day for me at times has been like that of Charlie Brown, who went to school with a briefcase hoping to receive a host of Valentines and instead only got one. Remember what it said? Forget it, kid. <laughs> I have searched, you know, I'm married 20 years and so, for that perfect Valentine's Day gift. And, uh, you know, I've, I've succeeded some and failed some, but I've compiled, just in case you still have not given a Valentine's gift to somebody, here are some that you should not give to a person. Okay, Don't give this if you're still thinking. Okay, In no particular order. Uh, number one, a gym membership. Bad idea. I love you. Now go get in shape. Okay? That's not a good idea. Don't do that. How about number two? Savings bonds. I love you. Here's a tea bill. Enjoy. No, it's not romantic. Valentine's is about love. It's about feelings. It's about passion. So how about this? A pager. Huh? I need you. Come here. Feels a little bit weird, right? A little bit 
strange, you know. Now Peter's nowhere. Number four, a machete. <laughs> you can do a lot of things with a machete, can't you? You can cook, you can dice, you can mince. But no, that's not exactly right either. No. <laughs> Number five, a cat stand. <laughs> I think that's it. These are funny things, people, when you can laugh at my jokes. Jeez. Very tough crowd. Cat stand, okay? I came up with that one myself. No, you can do something romantic. You know, it's interesting when you do have a special other someone, what is it that that person really wants? You know, I did the flowers thing, I did the chocolate thing, but you know what my wife really wanted? A trip to Lowe's to buy some paint. And so Valentine's Day, Liellen and I are in the paint store. We got a nice green chiffon, you would say, not chiffon, sherbet, maybe? A nice green something for our bedroom. And so we spent yesterday painting uh, the bedroom. That, my friends, is true love uh, for a 20-year-old couple. You know, where did Valentine's Day come from anyways? It's not from Hallmark. They didn't invent it. There actually was a, a name of a Roman priest. His name was Valentinus. And it was in the days of the Emperor Claudius, back in the day. And during this time in the Roman Emperor, uh, Claudius and the establishments did not like the men uh, of the, the soldiers of the army to get married because their interests would be divided. And so as a result, they wanted them to, if you will, be married to the state. The army was their wife, and so they wouldn't get married. But obviously the church said no. You know, that, that, that this love between a man and a woman is a beautiful thing. It's a sacred thing. The, the culture of the time was polygamous. But Valentinus uh, dared to defy the emperor by secretly marrying soldiers, men who wanted to be married to women. And when it was ultimately discovered, uh, Valentinus uh, was sentenced to a three-part execution, beating, stoning, and finally being beheaded because of his stand for Christian marriage. Now where we get the term Valentine was before he passed, uh, in fact, one of the people who was supposed to judge him, his name was Astrius, as legend has it, had a, had a daughter who was blind. And Valentinus uh, healed this girl. And as he was, uh, he was uh, sending her a letter, not as a lover, but as her priest, he signed it to her. This is probably my last letter from your dear Valentinus, from your dear Valentine. Valentine's Day is really at the core of what life is about. And that's not necessarily between a man and a woman. It's about, though, belonging. The deepest desire of the human heart is to belong. To belong to someone else, whether it is a man or a woman. It's to belong to a family. It's to belong to a church community. It's to have an identity that is outside of myself, that is part of who I am as a person. If you look at it, it's fascinating. You look at people, you'll see in all of them a desire to belong. You know, when I was on staff with Young Life, there was a friend of mine, he used to run two clubs. He ran Young Life on Tuesdays and Anti-Young Life on Thursdays. Young Life was for all the kids that thought Young Life was cool, and Anti-Young Life was for all the kids that thought Young Life was stupid. But they even looked their own. You know, the people that don't want to conform with everyone else? Well, they look like the other people that don't want to conform with anyone else. Because we have a deep desire to belong. The story of life is about belonging. And the story of Christianity is about 
the story to which we just read is about a people looking for identity. Most important question in your life is not who you are, but it's rather whose you are. And this story is about a people becoming and belonging. The story of God, the story of the gospel is ultimately this, that God has called himself a people and he has said to you, I have made you mine. And so God's deepest desire for you is not your duty, but rather your devotion. Because love is the greatest response to love. And so the greatest privilege of Christianity is not believing, but belonging. If you are a Christian, my friends, God has made you His own. And so my encouragement to you is to make the sole aim of your life not work, but rather worship. We're going to look at this people and this pivotal step in their history. And we're going to see that God does three things in their lives that God wants to do in ours as well. Number one, He reclaims them. He calls them His own. He reclaims them. Number two, He defends them. Because they are His, we see the hand of the Lord upon these people. And then finally, number three, He sustains them. As they go from one side to the other, from captivity, from the desert, to Canaan land, God sustains them. He brings them into a land flowing with milk and honey. He reclaims them, He defends them, and sustains them. Because the greatest privilege of Christianity is not believing, but belonging. Well, let's begin. Let's look at this first part, part about He reclaims us. Now, keep in mind what has occurred. These Israelites, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. Probably about 2.3 million of them is what the estimates are. In the desert for 40 years, God has miraculously crawled, uh, allowed them to cross the Jordan by heaping up the waters. A miracle. 2.3, Hampton Roads area, 1.6 million. Okay, this is the size of people that we're talking about here. And God has said to them, He's going, I'm going to give you this land. And so what does God do? Once they've come over to the other side, it's time to start marching. It's time to take down the enemy. No, He actually says, I tell you what I want you to do now. Let's go ahead and circumcise all the fighting men. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's a horrible strategic decision. Okay, I just do. Okay? Let's incapacitate the entire army for a stretch of time. Now, if you're going to circumcise these folks, God, why not do it on the other side of the water, right? At least they're safe. But rather, God brings them over to the other side and puts them in the most vulnerable position possible. Imagine the fear on these men's minds when they realize we're utterly defenseless. And yet this is God's command. And indeed we see that God has said that as soon as these folks have crossed over, all the kings of the Amorites, all of them melted with fear because they realized what God had done. So verse 2, at the time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Now the question is why? Why now? Why at all even? Circumcision is tied up with God's promise to make a people himself, uh, uh, call these Israelite people and make them his own. As it says in Genesis 7, 17, 7, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is God speaking to Israel. And I will be the God of you and the God of your descendants. And this whole land of Canaan in which you are right now as an alien, God has given this promise as Abraham is walking through Canaan land, just him. 
I will give it as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants, and I will be their God. And as for you, Abraham, and your descendants, you must keep my covenant. This is my covenant with you that you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it shall be the sign of a covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Okay, why would God use this to be some sort of sign of the covenant? In fact, what you'll discover is when God makes a covenant with someone, a covenant meaning a promise, think like a marriage covenant, God always places a sign or sacrament that comes alongside of it. A visible expression of an invisible reality. A way for us to interpret and understand what God is saying He is going to do. So think of the story of Noah. God makes a promise to Noah on the other side after the waters have subsided. And He says, I will never flood the earth again. I will never flood your descendants. And to show you this, I will give you a sign. A rainbow. Right? Now, when someone would have seen that bow in the sky, they would have thought of a bow and arrow. But this bow is not pointed down, it's pointed up. It's a shield, very similar to the umbrella that we use as we walk around. God is showing in this sign that he will not flood the earth again. How about Moses? That I will protect you, I will watch over you. And he gives them the commands, he makes a covenant with them, and he gives them an illustration of what this is supposed to look like. It's the Sabbath. If you obey my commands, I will give you a time of rest. You will not have to work. Imagine the Egyptians, 430 years, slaving, making bricks, and every day, every day, to have rest. A picture of what God wants to do with them if they will obey his commandments. <coughs> And so with Abraham, God gives this picture of what he wants to do, and it's circumcision. What's this picture? Well, as we know, without getting too graphic, it is the place from which life flows. Life flows. It takes two to tango, right? A man, a woman. But the man gives, and the woman receives, and life occurs. It is the source of life. It's how life is perpetuated. But with no life, there is death. If there's no life to come, there can be no flourishing. And so what is God is saying is at this very spot, I will purify. At this very spot, I will bring life. I will bring your offspring after you again and again, and you will flourish and grow into a great people. According to statistics, in order for the Israelite people, from 430 years starting as 70 people, the sons of Abraham, to leave us 2.3 million people, that means that an average of 8.5 children was born to each family of Israel. God says, I will bring life out of you. And it will not be a curse, but it will be a blessing. So circumcision is a picture of life, but it's also a picture of favor. You know, the Israelites were not the only people that practiced circumcision in the ancient world. The, the Philistines did not, the Amorites and all these folks, but the Egyptians did. In fact, they still do it now in many non-Christian cultures, but Israel was the only culture in which circumcision was commanded on the eighth day in the beginning of their life. Everyone else, it was a rite of passage. 
Even now in certain sections of Kenya, it happens when you're 12 or 13 when this is performed. It's a, it's a rite of passing. It's a proving that you are a man and worthy. See, what God is saying is that I will make you strong. I will make you worthy. I will, even before you have proved yourself, I will prove you. Because this is my blessing upon you. This is the sign of my covenant. Now the question we have to ask is, why hasn't this been going on for 40 years? Right? The, all the other folks, when they left Egypt, did it. Why hasn't this been going on? Verse 4, 5, and 6, as you see the explanation of uh, what has happened. I can't really figure it out aside from one thing. I think the people are demoralized and defeated. I think the people decided and said, God is not for us. God never commanded them to stop doing this. But because of their disobedience, they basically threw up their hands and they said, God is not for us. God is not going to lead us into this land. We're stuck. We have a death sentence upon us. To be sure there was disobedience, but God never forgets His commandments. And so God has told them, be circumcised. So to show that I am with you, and in verse 10, so you can celebrate the Passover. As far as I can tell, they have not celebrated the Passover for 40 years. And so now, on the brink of engaging with the enemy, God has commanded them, remember, I said that I would give you life. I said that you would be my people. I will go before you. I don't know about you, but all of these men who are getting ready to go to war, they've not fought a day in their life. They are unproven. And they were probably quaking in their boots. But God said, trust me, I will go before you. The most important thing you need to understand, people of Israel, is not that you're capable, but rather that you're mine. Not to believe, but rather to belong. You know, when you go and you adopt a child, here's what happens. It's the strangest thing, because we've all seen Annie, and we grew up seeing it. You know, and you get the child, and, and they come, and they live happily ever after. It doesn't work like that at all. Particularly if the child has been abandoned. The child will come into your home, and the child will not want to be there. And so for the first 90 days of our life, it was essentially... Our daughter kicking and clawing and screaming and yelling because she could not get used to the fact that she belonged to someone. She was much more comfortable and used to being on her own. It was her and 30 kids with four caregivers, not her with two parents that fed her hand to hand, that told her where to sit, that washed her clothes, that did all of these things. She didn't know what it meant to belong. And so she fought, and she bucked, and she kicked. And truth be told, often we do the same thing with our Heavenly Father. Often the tension in our relationship with God is we refuse to accept His care and His love. We refuse to receive His promises. But you see, my friends, the greatest privilege of a Christian is not believing, but it's belonging. And so God, who calls the Israelites to remember in the sign of circumcision, calls the same thing to us. For if you're a Christian, you have been given signs too. The picture of baptism is almost identical to that of circumcision. They never dumped anything in the Old Testament, by the way. They always sprinkled it. 
And it was always with blood to make it from unholy to holy. What God is saying is, I have taken you an unholy thing and I have made you holy. And I will restore you and I will renew you. And I will bring you who are far away into a people, a body called your church. And I will feed you. And I will take care of you. The privilege that we have here on this Sunday is to know without a doubt that we belong. And so what I want you to start doing is stop trying to get your act together. Stop trying to prove that you belong. You know, some of you, and me sometimes, we come and we start thinking, you know what, God's been really good to me. I better get my act together. i gotta, I got to start changing. Maybe you've found church for the first time in a while, you know. I've wandered. i got to stop cussing. i got to stop doing i got to stop changing. i got to get my act together so I can get my membership card signed for one more year. Now God says, look, before you even go into battle, in the beginning, I want you to know that you belong to me. The greatest privilege of the Christian life is not to believe, but to belong. And so you and I must live as one who belongs. What's the impetus for your life? What is the source of the energy, of the power by which you live? What's your motivation? Is it that I have to attain the promised land? Or is it that God has given it to me because He loves me? God has reclaimed for Himself a people. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And He calls you and me to live as the chosen ones in the blessing. God will take care of the rest. The greatest privilege that we have is, to, is not to believe, but to belong. So belong. This is what God is teaching the Israelites. And because He teaches them, He reclaims them, He defends them. This brings me to my second point. What God reclaims, He always defends. I don't know if you know anything about, if you're a historian, if you've read anything about D-Day, Operation Overlord. The biggest military exercise in the history of the world. If you look at the statistics on what it took to pull off D-Day, it's quite mind-boggling here. I was looking at the stats here. They had to move uh, 5,000 boats secretly, vessels, with over 150,000 men, 30,000 vehicles, 5,000 tons of gasoline would be needed daily for the first 20 days after the assault. They estimated they needed 3,489 long tons of soap for the first four months in France. A massive, mind-boggling undertaking. It was Eisenhower who was the brains behind the thing. He had a mind, he could track everything, he had the ability to make it happen. Listen to God's plans to take the promised land. Here's what he's done so far in the first five chapters. Make sure to obey the law, stay unified as a people, here's the ark, Follow it. Oh yeah, and build a monument. Okay, and one more thing. Make sure to be circumcised. Okay, you don't build a monument until after you've won the fight, right? He builds a monument before. How can this be one plan, this be the other plan? I can only come to two conclusions. Number one, God is not in a hurry. God is not in a hurry with what he needs to accomplish and what he wants to accomplish it. He will accomplish it in his own time, in his own purpose, in his own way. And that's the same thing for your life and my life. I'm not stressed out about this church because God is not in a hurry. 
God has a plan of what he is going to do. And God is not the least bit worried about any situation, including 2.3 million Israelites that are circumcised in the desert. Because God is God, and he has made a promise. And what God promises, he fulfills. Joshua 1.3, he said to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness in Lebanon, as far as the great river, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, it shall be all of your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. He's not worried about the situation, because he is the God of Israel. Deuteronomy 32:39, God says, See now that I am self and he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I make alive. I'm wounded and I heal, and none can deliver out of my hand. Now, I don't know about you, but my problems are not as big as that of General Dwight D. Eisenhower's. Certainly not as big as the Israelites. But I have enemies that loom over me, just like you do as well. So what are they? Maybe relational problems. My stress with my spouse is at the breaking point. You can see the stress fractures. Maybe there's stress with my financial problems. They seem to keep building upon me. It's like this wave that is coming over the shore at any time. Maybe addiction problems. It's this secret thing that you have, you know. It's that bottle that's hidden over in the corner. It's that relationship. It's on me. It pushes against me. Maybe it's health problems. Maybe it's the cancer that doesn't seem to want to go away. And they push in upon us. They loom over us. They laugh at us. But God is the God of the universe. See that I am He and there is none like me. I kill and I bring to life. I wound and I heal and none can deliver from my hand. See, ultimately what's behind all of these enemies is death. It's fear. It's the enemy that pushes back upon us and says that you're mortal. Ultimately you will fail. You will go back to the desert. You will go back in the water. But God is not in a hurry. And so God takes the time to communicate to the Israelites that because I have reclaimed you, I will defend you. At that time, verse 2, the Lord says to make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel. You know, there are plenty of iron tools at the time. Why did God use flint knives to do that? It's interesting, in all the places where God commands man to build an altar, he never says to use an iron tool. Always stone. Because it's holy to God. God is saying to each one of these people, male and the females that they represent, you are holy. And in verse 9 he says, today after I've circumcised you, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The word Gilgal, actually in Hebrew, sounds very uh, similar to the verb to roll. I've rolled away this reproach. Only times this word is ever used again in the Old Testament is in two different manners. One is rolling away a stone from a well and rolling away a stone from a cave. The same, same picture 
of God who rolled the stone away from the tomb of Jesus Christ. See, the ultimate enemy against your life is not your health, it's not your money, it's not your relationships, it's Satan and it's death. But what God is saying is that I will mark you and I will defend you and I will roll away this stone of reproach from you. Your problem is not your health. Your problem is the grave. Your problem is not your finances. It's the sentence that comes upon you because you are a sinner and so am I. But there is only one that God has rolled the stone away from. Jesus Christ. The one who death could not have hold over. Why? Because he was innocent. And he was vindicated. And he was raised to life. God reclaims us through his promise in Jesus Christ. And God shall deliver us from all of our enemies. We shall not have to fear the terror of death. Because God will resurrect us. Christ has endured the reproach of death on the cross. And so we, like Christ, can look at the world and laugh. Verse 15, Corinthians 54 says this, When the perishable us has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory, and where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout the rest of your life, you will have challenges, and the world will laugh at you. And you will be tempted to believe them. But God says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised for us is at the right hand and is interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God has rolled away the stone of reproach from you, Christian. God has circumcised your heart. He has cleansed you from death. Resurrection is your future, not condemnation. I don't know if many of you know about the famous shoe salesman, Dwight Moody turned from being a shoe salesman to one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world, being called by God. And Moody preached to millions, and it was coming time for Moody to die, and this was one of Moody's last sermons. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is deaf. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I have, shall have gone up higher. That is all. Out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the spirit will live forever. What God reclaims, God defends. And so how do we live in between these two times of death and resurrection? We live in holiness. We live in obedience. We live in consecration. We live in dependence. But because of Christ's righteousness, we have the ability, even maybe the obligation, to stare our enemy 
in the eye. To live with confidence in the world and place that God has called us to. What has God called you to do in this world? Are you married? Love your spouse. Reject passivity. Accept responsibility. Lead courageously. Has God called you to be a father or a mother? Lay down your life for your child. Teach them what it means to be a Christian. Has God given you a fight with cancer? Has God given you a fight with your health? Stare down your enemies. It may have the upper hand with your health right now, but it will not have the upper hand forever. Stare down that bottle. You don't own me. I am blood-bought. Whenever Satan would tempt, uh, tempt Mark Luther, he would always say this, I am a baptized man. Have you been baptized? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior? Are you part of the family of God? God has reclaimed you, and God will defend you. And He defends us as a people. So stop freaking out. Rest in His promises, and be patient. Because the greatest privilege of Christianity is not believing, but belonging. This brings me to my final point. What God reclaims, God defends, Finally, God sustains. Verse 11. At the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Forty years of manna and quail. What do you think like that meal tasted like, huh? Pretty darn good. And they celebrated. You know they had to. A stage of their journey was over. A new stage was beginning. You know, as we're on this stages of life and our journey as Christians, there'll be time for celebrating and there's time for pulling in your belt. But the truth is, God continually sustains us. According to the numbers, in order to sustain this amount of people in the desert every day for 40 years, it would have required at a minimum 4,500 tons of manna and 15 million gallons of water a day. And they come into the promised land, and do you think it was that easy to pick that much food? Remember, we had people that came to this country set up colonies, right? They couldn't even keep 60 people alive. Where did this come from? It was God continuing to sustain his people. See, nothing has changed in the desert and in the promised land. The food's gotten a little better. The promises of God continue forever. We are on the journey. And so our trust and our confidence is in God regardless of the circumstance. Don't fix your hopes on this world, my friend. Don't fix your hopes on building a castle that will sustain you against everything because it won't. There's anything that this present time has taught us is that life is very fragile. But we do not have to fear this world because we have a God who has reclaimed us. We have a God who will defend us and we have a God who will sustain us. This church is for you to be fed and nourished. This people is for you to be consoled and encouraged. And this word is for you to be reminded and reprimanded and encouraged. God has rolled away your reproach if you are a Christian. The stone 
is on the side. The tomb is empty. Christ is our boast and we are victorious in Him. So let us live belonging. Let us live behind our God. And let us live confident in each day that God will meet us and He will meet all of our needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. The greatest privilege of Christianity is not believing, but belonging. God has made you His own. So make the sole aim of your life not to work for Him, but to worship Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that when we had no name, you gave us a name. Son of God, daughter of God. When you were our enemy, you gave us a new name. Our Father, our Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have reclaimed us, and we thank you that you will watch over us. Lord, I pray for every one of us right now who feel the terror, perhaps, of that giant tsunami, whatever it is. Lord, help us to have rest in uncertainty. Help us to take joy in the moment. Help us to take confidence in the fact that you will never leave us or forsake us. And that you are more than enough for what we need to emerge victorious. We pray all these things in Christ's name.